Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. This is... Uh, this is actually Monday, August 19, 2019. You're listening to Dolly Reads for You, and the date for the show that I'll be reading for is uh, August hold on 28 2019 so this reading is for the show that will be aired on August 28 2019 alright now uh, I drew a card. Angels had me draw a card, of course. Angel card. Let me get to it and read it for y'all. Here it is. Archangel Mur. Interspecies Relationships. Ooh, interesting. Archangel Murr is here to speak to you this day about interspecies relationships and that we truly are in relationship to all living things. What we do does affect the whole. It may be different, difficult to understand this. So Murr has asked to show you a beautiful garden where everything is alive with consciousness. As you walk through this garden, you can feel and sense the plants and the trees. You can also feel them sense you as well, like a flow of energy between you and the plant you give your attention to. And you see as you think beautiful thoughts about that particular plant. It seems to glow even more. Your heart jumps for joy at this discovery. Myrrh continues to bring you into the garden, more so you may see more plants and trees. Myrrh can bring you here at any time. Give thanks to Myrrh for this new awareness. Thank you, Myrrh. Thank you, angels. Thank you, thank you for all your help and love. Now, let me put this card away because I don't want to lose it. No, I don't. I have lost one card, but we've worked out a system, so if they want me to read the card I lost, I know it. Okay. The book? Oh, uh, I'm Dolly Howard. I'm reading to you. And Nancy Hopkins is the producer of the show. I got ahead of myself. Okay. The book we're reading now is written by Jim Mars. He's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Rule by Secrecy. The book's name is Above Top Secret, Undercover, The Mysteries of the Digital Age. No, on cover, the mysteries of the digital age, not undercover. 
UFOs, aliens, 9-11, NWO, police state, conspiracies, cover-ups, and much more they don't want you to know about. And I think I need to turn my volume up. Hold on. Yes, I do. This, I may start shouting at you because I'm going to turn my volume up. Boo. <laughs> so the volume, hopefully, is a bit louder. Not enough to blast your ears out, but a bit louder. Okay, so we got to this chapter. Hold on, which one is it? Why did the Air Force change its story on Stephenville? And we are at this place right here. Let me see if I can give us a little background. I'll read the paragraph before. That was the last paragraph I read in the last one. Steve, Steve Allen of Selden, Texas, southeast of Stephenville, is a pilot and owner of LNS Enterprises and Texas Freight in nearby Glen Rose. On the evening of Tuesday, January 8, he noticed flashing white lights about 3,500 feet above his home. He told ABC News that the lights formed a rectangle pattern that spanned about a mile long and a half mile wide, and the pattern was headed toward Stephenville at 3,000 miles per hour. Allen was one of more than 200 area residents who reported seeing yellow, red, blue, and white lights that showed up after sunset. The lights were so bright that witnesses compared them to a welder's torch. Some of the red lights were seen moving together in pairs, while red, blue, and yellow lights moved around as if dancing with each other. All the lights would then turn to a bright white light and disappear. Being night, many of the witnesses saw only the bright lights. Allen said he estimated its size as perhaps a mile long and a half mile wide, which is why a bunch of the folks there started calling it the mothership. He also reported seeing two fighter jets he believed were F-16s chasing the object. And here he has a little insert. Um, I worked at a major F-16 base for five years where they flew missions every day and never were there ten in the same place at the same time. They usually went out two or four at a time. This is just fishy and really is insulting to our intelligence. I'm not saying that it really was a UFO or claiming to know what happened, but it wasn't 10 F-16s. <laughs> That's the end of his little insert. <laughs> bless his heart. Well, I should say bless his soul now. 
after more than 60 years, wait, after more than more than 60 years of tittering and snickering after each belated report of a UFO sighting, the news media, including national and international outlets, actually treated the Stephenville sightings with a modicum of respect. While there was, were the usual amount of hucksters and promoters, one expert, in quotation marks, brought forward turned out to be a convinced felon, convicted felon, and at least one news photo depicted a city official wearing a green alien mask. Oh, I remember that. They were real assholes. Uh, on January 15, Bud Kennedy, a column, columnist for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, echoed the usual media tone by writing, All I can say is, if space aliens were hovering over Texas last week, then maybe that explains the Cowboys, the Stephenville newspaper, the Empire Tribune, actually broke the story Thursday, January 10. But as far as I can tell, absolutely nobody in Texas paid attention until after Dallas was knocked out of the football playoffs. Oh, for crying out loud. But for the most part, the reporting was straightforward and remarkably non-judgmental. A Washington Post headline read, Dozens in Texas town report seeing UFO. While Canada's CBC News report said, Multiple reports of UFO-like sightings in Texas town. The sightings were even featured on CNN's Larry King Live. Jim Moore, a contributor to the Lufkin Daily News in East Texas, displayed some knowledge of UFO history by writing, Why do UFOs appear in so many pieces of art? that predates the aircraft era. Why do so many texts from ancient times seem to talk about UFO activity? Why are there consistently reliable sightings of gigantic and silent UFOs? I do not know the answers to those questions, but as our X-Files friend Fox Mulder told us, the truth is out there. <laughs> when contacted by the Stephenville Empire Tribune, Major Carl Lewis, spokesman for the 301st Fighter Wing at the Joint Reserve Base Naval Air Station in Fort Worth, stated, No F-16s or other aircraft from this, his base were in the area the night of January 8th. 2008, when most people reported the light sightings. Lewis went on to speculate that the sightings were two commercial airliners that momentarily crossed flight paths. This explanation was quickly dismissed, 
since the Stephenville sightings were numerous and took place over a number of days. Another explanation given was that the people had only observed a weather phenomenon known as a parhelion, P-A-R-H-E-L-I-O-N, more commonly called a sundog. This is a bright spot on the sun's halo caused by the reflection of sunlight in ice crystals with certain cloud formations and usually seen at sunset. This explanation foundered when it was noted that about half of the Stephenville sightings took place at night, long after the sun had set. Yet another explanation was that the sightings resulted from military flares. The same argument belatedly given following a mass sighting over Phoenix in March 1997. Of course, this explanation failed to match the witness accounts. Imagine that. And here is his insert here. Trying to insult the intelligence of ordinary folk in Texas is downright disgusting. Saying nothing at all or denying any involvement would have been more credible in my opinion. This just looks like damage control to me. But very bad damage control indeed. How in the hell can you mistake 10 F-16s for a mile-long object? <laughs> I love his little inserts, his little comments. A Nova Scotia man even proclaimed that the lights were merely were merely military planes guarding President Bush's home in Crawford, Texas, despite the fact that Crawford is about 75 miles southeast of Stephenville, and the President was not in residence. The obvious erroneousness of such explanations prompted a most unusual statement from the government two weeks later in the form of a news release from the 301st Fighter Wing stating that they, stating they had made a mistake in initially saying no planes were in the area at the time of the sightings. Wing officials said 10 F-16 fight, fighters were indeed in the area conducting training flights. Knowledgeable military experts disdained this explanation, stating that at no time would 10 F-16s be flying together short of World War III. <laughs> Here's another insert that he says, the author says, after the Air Force stated they were not in contact with the 10 F-16s. You don't make errors like that. How could they not know where a few million dollars worth of war fighting equipment went? <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> it's just so blatant that they're lying. Oh my gosh. You would think they could come up with something else. For a change, 
Even the media were skeptical. A CBS News Dallas Fort Worth affiliate stated merely, the mystery of the Stephenville UFOs might have been solved. Emphasis added. <laughs> In a statement today, a wing spokesman says they made a mistake and that jets were flying in the Stephenville area that evening. The Air Force no longer investigates UFOs, CBS reported, and then added some UFO background. Here's what they added. About 200 UFO sightings are reported each month, mostly in California, Colorado, and Texas. According to the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON, which went to the 17,000 resident town of Stephenville to investigate the alleged sightings. 14% of Americans polled last year by the Associated Press and IPSOS say they have seen a UFO. UFO sightings have been reported all over the world for centuries, including the infamous 1897 crash of a cigar-shaped object near the tiny Texas town of Aurora. While some thought it was a hoax, decades later investigators from UFO groups said evidence suggests the disfigured pilot's body buried that day was an alien. An opinion piece on the editorial page of the normally archived conservative Dallas Morning News was even more pointed in its skepticism, stating, Something strange happened in the sky over Earth County, no, Erath County, and the government's changing story is way fishy. The Air Force won't come clean. It's impossible to resist that otherworldly conclusions, visitors from outer space. Do they walk among us? How can you tell a space alien from the average computer programmer? <laughs> from the average computer programmer. <laughs> Put away the tinfoil hats and get serious. The government hid this stuff before. The Air Force once admitted that a disc crashed near Roswell, New Mexico, then backed off and came up with a story about a weather balloon. They denied they had spacemen's bodies. And in parentheses it says, but you can Google up proof that they did. End of the parentheses. New Mexico's own Governor Bill Richardson talked about a Roswell cover-up at a presidential debate this year. Proof on YouTube. Another ex-candidate, straight-shooting Dennis Kucinich, admits he saw a New Mexico UFO that sent signals to his mind. And you can find more on YouTube. These guys were running for president. Would they make something up? And why not trust the eyes of the hard-working people around Stephenville? A bunch of them saw the same things in the sky this month, 
slow-moving, direction-changing, glowing spheroids flying in formation. He has another little... Uh, he inserts another comment here. AF Major Carl Lewis needs to be brought up for court-martial because not only has he proven dereliction of duty by not knowing he had 10 F-16s on a training exercise from 6 p.m. one evening to 4 a.m. the next morning. But he, has also, but he also has apparently abandoned his post for the past two weeks, being that nobody could find him for 14 days to let him know of his error. <laughs> wow, I didn't know that. Back to the, uh, back to this Dallas Morning News comment. Witnesses also saw military jets come in for a peak. Come in for a peak, but the Air Force first denied they were in the area. But here's that familiar pattern: officials now say a whole squadron of F-16s was in the air. Why the shifting story? What did the jets see up there? Here's the official line. Operational procedures that can't be released. Swell. People see hovering flying things and that's all we get? You could get better information from Dick Cheney. <laughs> <laughs> Who said this? Dallas Morning News. <laughs> they go on to say, Experience tells us you can't hide the truth forever. It was years before we heard that Roswell's spaceship's debris was carted off to the Air Force's mysterious Area 51 in Nevada. Meantime, we swear by Orson Welles that there's no reason to panic here in Texas. If aliens meant us harm, we'd be earthling burgers by now. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Here's another insert. Doesn't the military realize this just makes people more suspicious? To say that there were no jets in the area, and now to recant that by saying there were, there was a major training exercise going on, and it's ludicrous. I like how he puts these in here. But if the citizens of Texas were not panicking, many were pondering what the aerial apparitions might portend. Witness Allen, a Baptist church greeter, told the Associated Press that Texas Texans are curious about the flying lights because this is the Bible Belt and everyone is afraid it's the end of times. But the most amazing and somewhat disconcerting account involving the Stephenville sightings came on December 11, 2007 with a prediction by Scottish evangelist Catherine Brown. 
a member of Gatekeepers Global Ministries in Ayrshire, Scotland, Brown posted to a website the following prediction. I see Texas ablaze and a stunning star, like the star from the east rising over the land. I hear the Spirit of the Lord saying to watch for cosmic signs and wonders in Texas. He said there will be a cosmological, cosmological phenomenon that scientists cannot explain, and the media will carry as frontline news. People will begin to ask about the light for a period of four months, from Christmas to Easter. There will be a window of opportunity for salvations, signs, healings, and wonders in Texas. Contacted by a newsman in her Scottish hometown, Brown, who has never been to Texas, said, I saw this huge light over Texas. It was actually just a short vision when I saw the news today about the Stephenville sightings. I thought, how interesting. The Stephenville sightings were also of interest to Ken Cherry, president of the Texas State Chapter of MUFON, who went with an eight-person team to the Stephenville area on January 18 to interview witnesses. Normally, we get 15 to 20 UFO reports a month, which puts us among the top two or three states in the country. With the high number of reporting results we have had in the Stephenville-Brownsville area, this is very significant. Over 150 reports. But these aren't all related to an individual sighting at a specific time. These took place at different hours of the day and night, and some even over the last several years, Cherry said. What we've uncovered is a pattern of UFO sightings at the area. They appear to be related to the same phenomenon, but they're not all at the same time. We consider this to be even more significant because so many people have reported incidents. We've eliminated a lot of the known possibilities. Early on in the investigation, we could see that something important was happening, or we wouldn't be devoting so many resources to this event. asked his reaction to the Air Force's explanation that jets were training in the area. Cherry said, Initially, when they denied any involvement, I think they were trying to discredit the witnesses by saying that what they had viewed was an optical illusion. We had witnesses who had accurately described F-16s in the area that were chasing a UFO. I think the new military explanation only reinforces the credibility of our witnesses, who have proved to be more reliable than the Air Force, frankly. The idea that they forgot they had an exercise in the area just doesn't hold water, so it appears to have been a cover-up. 
Here's another insert. Perhaps the Air Force's changing story is simply a way to subtly acknowledge the reality of the event while at the same time pacifying the people who do not wish to learn of such things. <laughs> Good comment. At the January 18 meeting with MUFON investigators in the Rotary Club building at Dublin, a small town south of Stephenville, where many more witnesses came forward, the number of media people in attendance was startling, said Cherry. Hold on. I need to get... I need to move a little. Jeez, oh, Pete. Okay. That's better. Uh, there were more than 75 media people in attendance. There were more than 50 witnesses who provided written reports, while another 50 simply left contact information because they didn't want to deal with the media. There was a crowd of about 600 persons in this small town. We caused a traffic jam in this little place, said Cherry. The Dr. Pepper Company provided drinks for the attendees. Well, that was nice of them. Here's another insert. It was only a matter of time before someone injected flares into the Stephenville UFO account. One has to wonder if it's a SOP to eject flares any time a UFO is reported near an Air Force base. SOP stands for Standard of Operation. Standard. Standard. I think that's it. It's close to it. Standard Operation. Uh, we now have about 200 reports in our MUFON.com system. Added cheery. And we have more than a dozen videos and photos submitted, but we have eliminated all but a couple. We are still working with these. These look promising, but none is from the January 8th sighting. Cherry said he believed one of the reasons so much public attention has been paid to the Stephenville sightings is that this is middle-class America coming forward not just some jokers coming out of the woodwork. These witnesses are, for the most part, older folks, pillars of the community, pilots, farmers, ranchers, flight attendants, oil field workers, just about every demo demographic you can think of. Most of them want to remain anonymous. The media has only reported five, four or five out of the total number of witnesses. He also said he is aware that there appeared to be an effort to stifle both the reporting and witness testimony in this case. One of the things they are trying to do is bring these sightings down to the one sighting on January 8. But there were many other sightings over a number of days. 
The inconsistencies of witness reports can be explained by the fact that they saw different things on different days, said Cherry. Witnesses Ricky Sorrells later claimed that someone in the government tried to harass and intimidate him into silence regarding his UFO experience. He said following his experience, military helicopters began low flights around his home, scaring his cattle and disturbing his family's sleep. Sorrell said on January 15, the day after he was interviewed by the Associated Press, a man identifying himself as an Air Force lieutenant colonel called him and asked to come and visit. When Sorrell said he did not want any more visitors, he reported that the man became abusive and said he was not taking no. Okay, I'm going to start this last sentence over. When Sorrells said he did not want any more visitors, he reported that the man became abusive and said he was not taking no for an answer. As the conversation heated up, Sorrells warned his caller not to cross his cattle guard. And in brackets he says, the cattle guard is the entrance to his property. Whereupon the caller stated, So we have the same caliper weapons as you do, but a lot more of them. Sorrell said he then demanded that the Air Force cease its low-flying helicopter flights over my airspace, is what he said, to which the man replied that it was not my airspace, it was his. Following this conversation, the helicopter flight ceased, but Sorrells said F-16 fighter jets were still over flying his home. Sorrells said he felt the phone call was an attempt to intimidate him into silence, especially after a man he knew who was, who once in the military told him, you need to shut your mouth about what you saw. Other persons in Stephenville area also reportedly have been cautioned in one way or another to cease talking about their experiences. <coughs> Here's an insert. The flare theory is untenable, especially since most of North Central and Central Texas is under a burn ban because of drought conditions. Yes, we got a ton of rain last year, but it's all dried up now, and some towns won't even let you have a barbecue. I would think local military bases would know this since they, since they have to live here too, and not endanger their homes or ours by dropping flares. Each local reporter was forced to leave her job. Oh, oh, sorry, I read that wrong. Hold on. <clears throat> Even a local reporter was forced to leave her job as a result of her coverage of the UFOs. 
Angela Joyner had been working for the Stephenville Empire Tribune for about 18 months when the lights began appearing overhead. Faithfully following the story, Joyner was able to publish several news stories which brought her to the attention of the national media. But by the first week in February, her publisher had had enough. Despite the fact that January 28 was a high sales month for the Empire Tribune, Joyner was told the paper did not want any more stories concerning the UFOs. It is time to move on, Joyner was told. Faced with compliance or following the story, Joyner gave her notice to the newspaper, but there were no grace there was no grace period. This morning they had confiscated my computer and I was told to pack up and get out. Joyner said on February nine. I'm devastated and still in shock. It's funny how one day I was sitting on top of a huge global story, and practically the next I'm looking for a job, she added. Apparently the Stephenville area has been a hotbed of UFO activity for more than 100 years. And here's an insert. Perhaps the swamp gas on Venus flared up and reflected off of space flares, making them appear to fly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love his inserts. <laughs> his comments. <laughs> Strange objects in the sky are nothing new in the Stephenville area which boasts sightings going back as far as 1891, when a newspaper story spoke of citizens seeing what could only be described as a burning bale of cotton in the air, which exploded, scattering metallic debris imprinted with strange and undecipherable hieroglyphs. In 1897, just still laughing about that. In 1897, six years before the Wright brothers made the first heavier than air flight at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, the Dallas Morning News, in its April 19, 1897 edition, wrote the farmer wrote that farmer C. L. McElhaney of Stephenville, along with more than twenty other named citizens, had seen a sixty foot long aerial monster, described as a large cigar shaped craft, with two immense wheels on either end sitting in his pasture. McGillhenny said the aircraft carried a pilot and engineer financed by certain capitalists of New York. The crew, who identified themselves as S.E. Tillman and A.E. Dolbear, 
claimed they were testing the machine and had landed to make repairs. Prophetically, McIlhenny was quoted as wondering, What you reckon is going to happen when dynamiters get to riding in airships and dropping bombs down on folks and cities? Is this world ready for airships? But the most unusual aspect of the recent sightings has been the widespread and largely non-judgmental media coverage. It's amazing how this has taken on an international profile, remarked Mufon's cherry. I've had calls from Japanese and British newspapers. The serious attention being given the Stephenville story by the news media, including the national and international media, may mark a turning point in the coverage of UFO incidents, which in turn may mark a new and more open public perspective, Cherry added. That's the end of that chapter. Now to a new chapter called Do Road Signs Contain Hidden Codes? So, the new chapter always has a who, what, when, where, and why thing. So let's read that. I'll read that. <laughs> who? The United States government, apparently in coordination with state and local governments. What? Highway signage that can double as covert markers for the direction of troops in time of emergency. When? Whenever a national emergency is declared, which according to recent presidential directives can be anything the president decides constitutes an emergency. Where? In signs found across the United States, and perhaps even in Canada and other NATO nations. Why? Covert highway signs can facilitate the movement of foreign troops who may not be able to read or understand conventional U.S. signage. Why would foreign troops be in our country? I don't know. So on to the chapter. <clears throat> the next time that friendly road sign points the way to gas or breakfast at Denny's, you might want to consider that in reality it may be a TACMAR, T-A-C-M-A-R. TACMAR is a military-style abbreviation for tactical markings, an easily understood sign allowing military units to quickly locate civilian hospitals, airports, transportation hubs, and other important facilities. Such TACMARs, sometimes referred to as sign codes, seem to be found mainly throughout the United States, although some have been reported in Canada. Suspicious researchers 
contend that some road signs contain embedded codes as well as as well and that the US sign system has been covertly altered changing from a word-based system to European style pictures images color codes and a variety of arrow configurations some who have researched these signs say they are markers that serve as pointers to point direction or identify a site or facility to be confiscated ugh, and used as a base operation. These codes reportedly are created by positioning reflective markers in quadrants on the back of such signs. On the back of such a by imaging the rear of the sign vertically divided in half, markers on the left side indicate left, while those on the right indicate right. Color codes basically red and blue are supposed to indicate the nature of whatever is being pointed out, such as a hospital, airport, or support facility. Some of the signs noticed by researchers don't seem to make sense, such as signs for facilities that don't seem to exist there. Marking routes and facilities is nothing new. During the 1950s and 1960s, civil defense authorities marked designated buildings and sites with signs and symbols to identify shelters and command centers in the event of a nuclear strike. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. In the 50s and 60s, yeah. For in the event of a nuclear strike. That's when we people my age were in school and we were taught to get under our desks on our knees and cover our heads with our hands <laughs> and that would save us from the nuclear strikes <laughs> oh my gosh it's just crazy what they think they can well, they did a good job of it, but people did what they said. Uh, deep state type people, but uh, they didn't believe it. I mean, how could you believe you could hide under your desk and cover your head with your hands and you'd be safe from a nuclear bomb? How could, how could anyone believe that? Nowadays, we just tell them, yeah, right. <laughs> In different words <laughs> that I won't say right now. <sighs> okay, I got off on a tangent. They got me wound up. Well, I wound myself up. Uh, routes through cities leading to relocation centers were marked as disaster corridors for the evacuation of citizens. Critics claim such signs are in place to facilitate a military takeover 
of the United States. Whether the imposition of martial law or an invasion of, by foreign troops, perhaps labeled as United Nations peacekeepers, these forces would require pre-placed road signs to swiftly locate their objectives. Debunkers claim such fears are groundless and that the signs along with stickers on their reverse side are simply a means of locating lost or stolen signs. Oh, <laughs> okay. And in his little comment here, the sign codes and markers are universal codes to bridge language barriers for foreign troops who can't decipher our English road signs and highway visuals. I still don't understand why would foreign troops be here in the United States. Others pointed out that the U.S. interstate highway system was originally a military project designed and built during the Cold War to rapidly move men and materials across the nation in the event of war or a national emergency. Its official name, the Dwight D. Eisenhower National System of Interstate and Defense Highways, reflects the military nature of this system. Interstate highways must conform to several federal requirements, including being capable of 90 mile per hour traffic with a mile long straight stretch of road every few miles, which can serve as an emergency runway for aircraft. I'll be darned. Isn't that interesting? Did any of you know about that? Interstate highways must conform to several federal requirements, including being capable of 90 mile per hour traffic with a mile long stretch, straight stretch of road every few miles, which can serve as an emergency runway for aircraft. I did not know that. Very interesting. <clears throat> Obviously, in a nation the size and density of the United States, signage is very critical to any military operation. While road maps are always desirable, they may not they may be unavailable or badly out of date. Many conspiracy scenarios for the coming years have foreign troops. Either NATO or UN occupying portions of the United States. Such troops, many unfamiliar with the English language or our customs, would require universal signage to travel easily. 
Some researchers believe that this was the real purpose behind the universal signage approved by the United Nations. It goes far beyond merely helping foreigners find the restroom or a place to eat. Additionally, if the U.S. was attacked by nuclear weapons, producing an electromagnetic pulse capable of knocking out all electricity, GPS location devices would become useless. Pre-placed, easily read road signs would become a necessity whether for defense or conquest. <coughs> Oh dear, how long have I been recording? Oh good grief, and I don't even know how to figure it out. I thought I put this on pause so I could rest. Uh, so, um, I don't know what to do about it. I'm just going to go ahead and continue reading where I left off before I took my rest. If a military incursion, foreign or domestic, into your town or city seems like paranoia, run rampant, consider the experience of the small town of Kingsville, Texas, even prior to 9-11. <clears throat> Beginning on the night of February 8, 1999, a series of mock battles using live ammunition erupted around the 25,000 inhabitants of the town. Located near 
Corpus Christi. In a military operation named Operation Last Dance, eight black helicopters roared over the town. One nearly crashed when it hit the top of a telephone pole and started a fire near a home. Soldiers of the elite 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, known as the Night Stalkers, ferried by the chopters, staged an attack on two empty buildings using real explosives and live ammunition. During the action, an abandoned police station was accidentally set on fire, and a gas station was badly damaged when one or more helicopters landed on its roof. I certainly hope they notified the citizens of this beforehand. Citizens of Kingsville were terrified during the drill as only police chief Philippe Garza and Mayor Philip Esquivel were notified of the attack in advance. Both men refused to give any details of the operation, insisting they had been sworn to secrecy by the military. What? The creeps? The poor people? Only Arthur Rogers, the assistant police chief, would admit to what happened. The United States Army Special Operations Command was conducting a training exercise in our area, he said, but refused to provide, but refused to provide any details. That just isn't right. Here's a insert. <clears throat> I have seen many signs that have been put up in strange places. For instance, a fairy sign where there are no fairies, and pointing in a direction that is far away from any water, and a school children crossing sign near the freeway, and far, far away from any school or place where children originally would be crossing. Also, a sign of a man golfing that was nowhere near a golf course. I checked. <laughs> Bless his heart. But hey, maybe the sign people just got confused. <laughs> you think the sign people got confused? <laughs> Here's another comment he's making. Hold on. <laughs> they're, use, they're used to track stolen street signs. Someone steals a sign. It shows up some time later. They run the ID on the back and know exactly where it came from. How hard is that to understand? Some cities are using barcodes instead of stickers. Some are using GPS locations. A handful of people really believe our armies or NATO are that dense that they can't read a road sign. <laughs> Jeez. Oh my gosh. Local 
Emergency Management Coordinator for FEMA, Thomas Sanchez, was not happy with the frightening attack and the lack of information and warning. Sanchez, a decorated Vietnam veteran with 30 years of service in naval intelligence, was asked what the attack was all about. He replied that based on his background and knowledge, the attack was an operational exercise based on a scenario where martial law has been declared through the Presidential Powers and War Powers Act, and some citizens have refused to give up their weapons. They have taken over two of the buildings in Kingsville. The police cannot handle it. So you call these guys in. They show up and they zap everybody. Take all the weapons and let the local PD clean it up. Chase. One resident told a reporter, This is a this is total BS. If we don't stop it now, it's going to get worse. Asked for comment, then Texas Governor George W. Bush said it was not his job to get involved in the concerns over the Night Stalkers using live ammunition in a civilian area of his state. He was such a frickin' coward. <sighs> Such a snake in the grass. Uh, uh, such a such a swamp bean. That's what I should call him, a swamp bean, and be done with it. <coughs> the night attack indicated the use of Presidential Decision Directive Twenty Five a top-secret document that apparently authorizes military participation in domestic police situations. Some speculated that PDD-25 may have sur surreptitiously superseded the 1878 Posse Comitatus Act which prohibits the use of military forces to police civilians. The events in Kingsville may date as far back as 1971, when plans were drawn up to merge the military with police and the National Guard. State guards were gradually eliminated during the past two decades. In that year, Senator Sam Irvin's Subcommittee on Constitutional Rights discovered that military intelligence had established an intricate surveillance system to spy on hundreds of thousands of American citizens, mostly anti-war protesters. This plan was codenamed Garden Plot. Britt Snyder who worked for the subcommittee, said the plans seemed too vague to get excited about. We could never find any kind of unifying purpose behind it all, he told a reporter. It looked like an aimless kind of thing. <clears throat> Four years later, 
garden plot became, began to come into sharper focus. Code named Cable Splicer and covering California, Oregon, Washington, and Arizona under the command of the 6th Army. It is a plan that outlines extraordinary military procedures to stamp out unrest in this country, reported Ron Reidenhauer and Arthur Lobo, Lubo in New York Times. Developed in a series of California meetings from 1968 to 1972, Cable Splicer is a war plan that was adapted for domestic use procedures used by the U.S. Army in Vietnam. Although many facts still remain behind Pentagon smoke screens, Cable Splicer documents reveals the shape of the monster that the Irvin Committee was tracking down. During the time of Cable Splicer, several full-scale war games were conducted with local officials and police, working side-by-side -side with military officers in civilian clothing. Many policemen were taught military urban pacification techniques. They returned to their departments and helped create the early SWAT, Special Weapons and Tactics Teams. Oh, hold on. I'm, I'm over my time. I have to stop this for part one and I'll continue with part two. Hello again. This is the second hour of Durfee for 8-28, August 28. Hopefully I can get through this hour much better than I got through the first two half hours. <laughs> it was a struggle, but I got it. I kept just screwing up, not on purpose, but I just kept screwing up. Okay. Representative Claire Bergener of California, a staunch Reagan Republican who had attended the Cable Splicer 2 kickoff conference, was flabbergasted when shown Cable Splicer documents stating... I've read Seven Days in May and all those scary books, and they're scary. This is what I call subversive. Submit Subcommittee Chief Counsel Doug Lee read through the documents and blurted, Unbelievable! These guys are crazy! We're the enemy? This is civil war they're talking about here. Half the country has been designated as the enemy. Snyder agreed, stating, If there ever was a model for a takeover, this is it. And see, that's exactly what I was thinking. The attacks of 9-11 and the war on terrorism 
had provided the pretext for the activation of plans such as Cable Splicer, a clear violation of the Posse Com Comitatus Act. In June 2002, despite promises by the Bush administration that it would not initiate any new intelligence reforms until after the joint congressional committees had completed their inquiry into the 9-11 attacks, the Pentagon quietly requested permission to create a powerful new position under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence. This request for yet another layer of authority was inserted into a Senate defense bill slated for congressional approval. Stephen A. Cambone was confirmed by the U.S. Senate as the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence on March 7, 2003, and sworn in four days later. Cambone left this position following the registration of Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld and was succeeded by retired Lieutenant General James R. Clapper. The Pentagon's gambit has been such a brilliant stealth attack that many members of Congress aren't even aware it is happening, let alone what it means, noted reporter Linda Robinson in U.S. News & World Report. No hearings have been held, and Pentagon officials portray it as merely an internal managerial matter with few broader implications. Right. But intelligence officials and experts say that could be that could not be further from the truth. Oh, imagine that. The new undersecretary position is a bureaucratic coup that accomplishes that accomplishes many Pentagon goals in one fell swoop. <laughs> I'm telling you, government really can get me wound up. Well, I should say it the different way. I can get really get wound up when it comes to government crap. That's how I should say it. Okay. Fears of secretive, overreaching agencies with military connections that might violate the Posse Comitatus Act appeared to find substantiation in January 2005 when new news outlets reported that since 2002, the Pentagon's Defense Intelligence Agency had operated an intelligence gathering and support unit called the Strategic Support Branch, SSB. With authority to operate clandestinely anywhere in the world where it is ordered to go in support of anti-terrorism and counter-terrorism missions. The SSB previously had been operating under an undisclosed name, 
SSB, remember, is Strategic Support Branch. <sighs> Road signage becomes critical in military-type maneuvers. The TACMAR road signs help identify detention centers and work camps already in place across the United States, such as those at or near Grayling, Michigan, Fort Smith, Arkansas, no wait, Fort Smith, A.K., is that Alaska? I don't remember, but Fort Smith, A.K., Palmdale, California, Fort Devens, MS, Fort Dix, New Jersey, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, Nashville, Tennessee, and Mineral Wells, Texas. Such sites rumored to number more than 600 are usually closed base, military bases surrounded by high chain-linked fences with the barbed wire on top pointing inward rather than outward, obviously to keep someone in rather than to keep people out. If one is comforted by the thought of federal protection from terrorist threats, consider this scenario. A pimple-faced 18-year-old dressed in camouflage and armed with a fully loaded M-16 arrives at your door and informs you that you must leave your home and come with him because the authorities fear a biological attack in your city. If you protest and say you'll stay and take your chances, you are in violation of the law and subject to arrest, fine, and imprisonment. After seeing his armed companions, you decide to join your neighbors in a military truck destined for a relocation camp situated many miles from your home. At the camp, you are instructed to stand in line for a vaccination against smallpox, anthrax, or whatever the latest threat might be. If you refuse the inoculation, recalling that in past years many such vaccines were proven to be tainted, you are again subject to fine and jail. If this sounds like an Orwellian nightmare, laws authorizing just such action had already been passed in several states and the District of Columbia by the end of 2002. Maine, New Hampshire, Maryland, Virginia, South Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, Florida, Missouri, Oklahoma, Minnesota, South Dakota, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico passed all or parts of the Model State Emergency Health Powers Act. I'm looking again through this. No, they don't mention Michigan. Interesting. Which was drawn up as a model law at the behest of the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention following the anthrax attacks that occurred in the Capitol on the heels of 9-11. They just sneakily do this stuff. Huh. Other states have either rejected or stalled the legislation 
but don't take comfort if your state is not among those passing this act, as most of this overreaching law was incorporated into the Homeland Security Legislation. He put in a insert here. I need to take a few breaths. Hold on. The makers and coded signs are confirmation. The markers and coded signs are confirmation si signals. FEMA, which is Federal Emergency Management Administration, purposely fostered the positioning of the signs to coincide with the operation and with the maps. I have no problem with maps, but if there is nothing else to pinpoint, verify, or exact your location, a map can be a nightmare. The sign codes are confirmation signals. If you mark the road with a TACMAR or coded signs, you have instant confirmation that this is the road site or facility. Under this legislation, authorities would be able to federalize all medical personnel, from ENTs to, to physicians, and enforce quarantines. They would have the right to vaccinate the public with or without their consent, seize and destroy private property without compensation, and ration medical supplies, food, fuel, and water in a declared emergency. This act goes far beyond bioterrorism, said Andrew Schlafly of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. It goes beyond a lot of stuff. Uh, on on elected state officials can force treatment or vaccination of citizens against the advice of their doctors. FEMA, designated as the lead agency under the Department of Homeland Security, also has plans in its files for the evacuation of cities and the use of sprawling temporary camps to house their residents. Under the pretext of planning for the war on terrorism, FEMA has dusted off and augmented contingency plans to counter the effects of nuclear, biological, and chemical attacks. Here's another insert, a big one. Walmart garden centers are fitted with iron bars and chain-link fencing locking roll-down overhead doors and locking exit with a register, scanner, and keypad swipe and card console. Might not such garden centers be a deten detention area where local dissidents can be detained for further processing and then relocation, and then they will be relocated to somewhere with each truck driver using the TACMAR system, driving trucks on the wrong sides of the entire road system. 
So, I guess they will just back the buses up to the loading dock of Walmart, threaten us with rakes and shovels. They will be getting medieval on our asses and conveniently relocate us to bases inside the United States. Thanks, Walmart, and thanks to the Takmar folks for a really good laugh. I happen to believe strongly in the theories surrounding the Illuminati. Quite a stench for many to consider. But this Takmar thing, their, con- their conclusions just don't seem very sound. I hear that the lawn guy is here again. He was just here a couple days ago. Boy, are we getting our money's worth. When he gets close to me, I'll stop it. I'll pause it. Like now. I want to keep going because I'm stronger now than I'll be later. And I wanted to get this done. One of the most ominous indications of government plans for something terrible in our future was the revelation that FEMA was storing hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions, of cheap plastic coffins measuring approximately seven feet long and three feet deep. More than one person per coffin? At least 500,000 such containers were photographed near Madison, Georgia, and posted on the Internet in late 2007. Research. Excuse me. Researchers claimed the plastic coffins, which can be sealed to prevent leakage of contaminants, were ordered from a firm named Polygard and Company, LLC, by the Veterans Administration and stored on land leased by FEMA. Polygard was founded by Lee Schwab, a fourth generation funeral director and licensed embalmer. It was noted that Georgia is the home of the Center for Disease Control. Here he comes. By mid-2002, FEMA was notifying its vendors, contractors, and consultants to envision the logistics of millions of displaced Americans forced to leave cities that come under attack. From who? Who is going to do these attacks? (sighs) The firms were given a deadline of January 2003 to be ready to establish such displaced person camps. FEMA made it known that it already had ordered significant numbers of tents and trailers to be used for housing. Such plans were briefly brought to the public's attention in the summer of 2002 when the Attorney General John Ashcroft publicly proposed the establishment of internment camps for American citizens he deemed enemy combatants. Now who gives him the authority to claim American citizens to be enemy combatants? Okay, okay. Uh, 
can get through this calmly. And who would provide the muscle for such activity? After all, U.S. troops are spread thin all across the globe. That's true. Here's another comment he makes. Why are we all in denial over the possibilities? Didn't we hear about prison camps in Germany and even in the United States during World War II? Japanese individuals were rounded up and placed in internment camps for the duration of the war. Where was their freedom? You don't think it could happen to you? Because those Japanese people, this is what I'm saying, those Japanese people were American citizens that they put in those internment camps, y'all. Just in case you didn't know that, I'm telling you. <sighs> According to plans that stretch all the way back to the U.S. program for general and complete disarmament in a peaceful world, introduced before the United Nations in 1961 by President John F. Kennedy. American sovereignty will eventually be replaced with policing by UN peacekeepers. This program called for the disbanding of all national armed forces and the prohibition of their reestablishment in any form whatsoever other than those required to preserve internal order and for contributions to a United Nations peace force. In mid-2007, President George W. Bush codified the consolidation of U.S. political power with his ominously worded National Security Presidential Directive NSPD 51 and Homeland Security Presidential Directive HSPD 20 innocently entitled National Continuity Policy in the interest of community of government no continuity of government this directive stated, The President shall lead the activities of the federal government for ensuring constitutional government. The implication was that he would lead the entire government, not just the executive branch. This takeover of the federal government was contingent on a catastrophic emergency broadly defined as any incident regardless of location that results in extraordinary levels of mass casualties, damage, or disruption severely affecting the U.S. population, infrastructure, environment, economy, or government functions. So in the event of an emergency, which can be defined solely by the President. Foreign troops, many already training within the U.S., will conduct relief operations, evacuations, relocations, house-to-house -house searches for weapons, and the seizure of all resources. 
Okay, here's another insert. The only useful purpose that I can imagine breaking such a code might serve is if we were to use those abandoned facilities ourselves to organize a resistance. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> Sound unbelievable? It's already happened. In early September 2005, several convoys of Mexican Army troops drove into Texas, ostensibly to aid in the Hurricane Katrina rescue efforts. Although the mainstream media reported these troops were unarmed, several accounts, citing witnesses, claimed some of the convoyed troops were armed with Heckler and Koch, K-O-C-H, German assault rifles. In addition to the Army troops, the Mexican Navy sent two ships, eight all-terrain vehicles, seven amphibious vehicles, two tankers, two helicopters, radio communication equipment, and medical personnel to assist relief workers in Houston's Astrodome. That was a fiasco. That was a freaking fiasco. They really herded those people into that dome. Oh, and the things that happened in that dome, there's no excuse for them. I'm not going there today because I need to stay calm. Okay. The announced entry of foreign troops to provide aid was contradicted by major media accounts of massive supplies gathered in major cities as well as reports that much of the aid was blocked from distribution. The Los Angeles Times reported scores of police and volunteer firefighters from around the nation, as well as trucks loaded with donated water, were even now being prevented from entering New Orleans while troops conduct house-to-house -house searches. At that time, the FEMA director was Michael D. Brown, the first person hired by his longtime friend and former FEMA director, Joe Albaugh, who ran George W. Bush's presidential campaign in 2000. Brown subsequently resigned due to his mishandling of the Katrina rescue. Many observers felt that FEMA intentionally created a climate to justify foreign troops entering the U.S. The Associated Press reported that a U.S. military press office employee said he did not know the precise location of the Mexican convoys but thought that they had been rerouted from Houston to Dallas. If the Army does not know the location of the convoys or why they are heading for Dallas, besides the fact that they are armed, isn't that an issue of national security? questioned one researcher. Duh. The last time Mexican troops were in Texas was in 1846 when soldiers from Mexico, which had refused to acknowledge the Rio Grande 
river as a border, were driven back. This incursion resulted in the Mexican-American War of 1848, in which Mexico lost about one-half of its former territory. Texas Congressman Ron Paul was irate, saying, Any Mexican troops here, period, is illegal and unconstitutional. I, I like that Ron Paul guy. Yet I have hesitation about him, too. Uh, let's see. Such troops need to find their way around with speed and efficiency. Is this the true purpose of the Takmar Road signs? Others have stated the belief that these signs and reflective markers found on the reverse side are coded to target vital sites, facilities, and resources to be confiscated and used by foreign troops. Some of these concerned persons include military personnel. Military personnel are concerned, y'all. While I was stationed in Beirut, Lebanon, after the bombing in the 80s, I saw those markers, TACMARS, put on the back of their road signs to bridge language barriers among multinational peacekeepers doing military operations in the city, stated U.S. Navy Chief Petty Officer A. Phillips. It's not all just about gun confiscation and maintaining order. According to Fox News, soldiers, either foreign or domestic, will enforce relocation and quarantines. Here's what they said. Among the specific proposals are plans to allow soldiers to enforce quarantines in the event of a chemical or biological weapons attack. Some researchers claim Takmar road signs located just outside cities and towns mark landfills, pits, cemeteries, and quarries already designated for mass graves in the event of a biological pandemic. Do you remember when, uh, I think it was Obama was in, they were gathering all these buses and parking them in certain areas, lots, and we we were aware that they were building places like uh, containment places to hold people, and it was said that they were for us, for American people. Do you all remember that? I can even envision the picture of several of the buses, the lots, where they had them. And uh, it was kind of a time of great wonder for a lot of us. What do they plan to do? And we knew that troops were being gathered together. Do any of you out there remember that? I sure do. It was either the end of Bush or 
during Obama. I keep thinking it was during Obama's reign. I can't swear to it. Naturally, the idea that someone is planning to incarcerate most of the population of the United States has been met with disbelief and derision. When first coming across this information, I was in a state of total denial, noted one commenter. How could this be? I believed our country was free and always felt a sense of comfort in knowing that as long as we didn't hurt others in observing our freedom, we were left to ourselves. Ideally, we treated everyone with respect and honored the uniqueness and hoped that others did likewise. It took an intensive year of searching into the hidden politics to discover that we are not as free as we believe we are. If we are in denial, we don't see the signs that are staring at us, but keep our minds turned off and busy with all the mundane affairs of daily life. Or buy into the false flags that they keep throwing out there, which I've noticed there aren't as many false flags lately, but there are false flags, like shootings and other things. So for now, the nation's road signs, like fluffy clouds, can be interpreted in any manner you would like. Only time will tell if the conspiracy-minded are on to something. That's the end of that chapter. I certainly think things have turned around a bit since he wrote this book. I forgot when was it. Let me look. Let me see here. Copyright 2008, and this is 2019, so that was 11 years ago, and I do believe things have changed in those 11 years. Okay, new chapter. What time is it? Oh, 32 minutes. I've done 32 minutes. Okay. Is free slash alternative energy being kept from the public? Of course it is. I can answer that question right now. Okay. Here's the who, what, when, where, and why. Who? The U.S. government and the oil industry. What is there? An active operation designed to suppress free and alternative energies? When? From the early 20th century to the present day. Where? Such claims proliferate on the Internet and have been the subject of several books. Why? To ensure that the owners of the oil industry continue to maintain their monopoly on the Earth's energy and to prevent the citizens of the world from having access to cheap or even free energies. The owners of the oil industry, and what do you think the Bush family does? <laughs> okay, here's the beginning of this chapter. In early 1945, Nazi Germany was on its knees with the Russians pouring in from the east and the British and Americans pushing from the West. 
Yet Nazi war production was at high levels. At, was at levels higher than in 1940, when the Reich was at its highest. The reason for this surprising production success was the Nazis' use of synthetic oil, basically landlocked. The North Sea was blockaded by Allied ships and submarines. Germany was forced to develop non-petroleum oils and grease. The most prevalent of the various methods used was hydrogenation processes, mostly developed within the IG Farben chemical combine, which produced synthetic oil from coal. Since World War II, knowledge of synthetic oil and alternative energy sources has almost dropped from public view. Many researchers have concluded that a free energy or alternative energy conspiracy exists to keep such technology from the public. They contend that the use of various renewable and groundbreaking technologies that could provide energy at reduced costs, perhaps at no cost at all, are being deliberately suppressed and discouraged by both major governments and the oil industry. Okay. The reasoning behind such suppression is simple. To preserve the e economic status quo and ensure a large profit from ever-increasing oil prices. Similarly, it is alleged that free energy cannot be allowed to gain a foothold in a capitalist system because that system would then utterly collapse if such energies and technologies were introduced on a widespread scale across the world. Most adherents of this theory suggest that the conspiracy had its beginnings in the 1930s and with the work of one Thomas Henry Moray, who claimed that he and his family had been threatened and shot at on several occasions, and that his laboratory had been ransacked by sinister sources as part of an organized effort to stop his free energy research. Moray, who received a Ph.D. in electronic engineering from the University of Uppsala, reportedly succeeded in developing a continuous energy source that today is known as zero-point energy, an energy that can be freely extracted from the quantum physical active vacuum space that is surround that surrounds us. Oh, maybe he's done more. In the 1920s, Moray demonstrated his radiant energy device that seemed to operate without any discernible means whatsoever. He would call his device a solid-state 
detector or moray valve and which consisted of a large antenna connected to a complex series of high voltage capacitors transformers and semiconductors by reportedly simul by reportedly stimulating the existing oscillations of radiant energy from space the moray valve is said to have run for several days producing 50 kilowatts of power the demonstrations attracted mainstream newspaper attention as well as scientists from Bell Laboratories and from the Department of Agriculture none could determine how the device actually operated and no evidence of fakery was ever found to his credit Moray refused to sell his technology to the corporate world fearing that it would be misused and he largely vanished into obscurity wonder if that was his choice or not others suggest that the research and the subsequent cover-up of free energy began much earlier with the scientific genius of Nikolai of Nikola Tesla Tesla that's always hard for me to say Nikola Tesla inventor of the magnifying transmitter a device that was essentially a high-powered harmonic oscillator designed to allow for the unlimited transmission of electrical energy via wireless transmission. <coughs> Born at the stroke of midnight on July 9, 1856 in the Croatian province of Laika, Tesla was without doubt a scientific genius who arguably ushered in the age of electrical power single-handedly. Tesla completed his elementary education in Croatia, continuing his schooling in the Polytechnic School in Graz, G-R-A-Z, and finishing at the University of Prague. He worked as an electrical engineer in Germany, Hungary, and France before immigrating to the United States in 1884. Arriving in New York City with quite literally four cents in his pocket, oh, bless his heart. Tesla soon found employment with Thomas Edison in New Jersey. However, personal differences between the two men soon led to their separation. So, those two in one room, I just can't picture. Their egos would have been so big they couldn't have fit. <laughs> but they're, they deserve the ego because they're so smart. Tesla then established a laboratory in New York City in 1887 where experiments 
ranging from the exploration of electrical resonance to studies of lighting systems were undertaken. Four years later, Tesla was at his creative peak. He developed in quick succession the induction motor, new types of generators and transformers, a system of alternating current power transmissions, fluorescent lights, and a new form of steam turbine. Tesla died of heart failure at the New Yorker Hotel sometime between the evening of January 5 and the morning of January 8, 1943. He was 86 years old. Interestingly, in the immediate aftermath of Tesla's death, the FBI ordered the government's alien property custodian office to size all of Tesla's papers, oh, they must mean seize, all of Tesla's papers and property, despite the fact that he had U.S. citizenship. <laughs> Does that matter anymore? What's the government after what we just read? Oh my gosh. <laughs> but I do believe more and more people are waking up and realizing we need to stand together, y'all. Don't let crap happen. Just needed to breathe a minute. Okay. The FBI, the federal government, and the corporate world that supplied weapons to the military had many reasons to be concerned by Tesla's activities. Right up to the time of his death, Tesla had been working on what became known as his Teleforce Weapon, a charged particle beam projector that was based upon a large Van de Graaff generator of unique design and a special type of open-ended vacuum tube. Tesla's invention also became known as the Peace Weapon, chiefly due to the fact that Tesla envisaged it having the ability to end all wars and discourage future ones. Bless his heart. Well, bless his soul now. In a letter to J.P. Morgan Jr. on November 29, 1934, Tesla wrote, I have made recent discoveries of inestimable value. The flying machine has completely demoralized the world. What? <laughs> so much that in some cities, as London and Paris, people are in mortal fear from aerial bombing. Oh, I see. The new means I have perfected afford absolute protection against this and other forms of attack. He added, These new discoveries which I have carried out experimentally on a limited scale have created a profound impression. One of the most pressing problems seems to be the protection of London and I am writing to some influential friends in England, hoping that my plan will be adopted without delay. 
the Russians are very anxious to render their borders safe against Japanese invasion, and I have made them a proposal which is being seriously considered. Taking into consideration the fact that there is good evidence to demonstrate that both the First and Second World Wars were secretly orchestrated by powerful men with a long-reaching agenda, you think? It seems likely that anyone, especially Tesla, whose peace weapon might have discouraged open warfare as well as the production of alternative energy sources that could have wrecked the all-powerful oil industry had to be stopped at all costs. Then there is the case of Wilhelm Reich. Born in 1897, Reich was an Austrian-American psychiatrist and psychoanalyst who created a storm of controversy when he began researching what he believed were links between human sexuality and neurosis. Reich placed great emphasis on something he termed orgastic potency, a previously unknown form of energy that Reich believed could revolutionize human health. The energy would ultimately become known as organ. Indeed, according to Reich's theory, all forms of illness could be traced back to the depletion of organ energy within the body. According to Reich, organ was the primordial cosmic energy, blue in color, and which he further asserted was both omnipresent and responsible for the Earth's weather, the color of the sky, gravity, the formation of galaxies, and the biological expressions of both emotion and sexuality. Beginning in 1940, he conducted clinical tests on people who would sit in a box-like device constructed by Reich, known as the Orgone Accumulator, to soak in concentrated amounts of Orgone energy. As his research continued and became more ambitious, Reich began to develop smaller portable devices that could specifically focus on enriching certain areas of the body, such as the immune system, as well as destroying localized tumors. Having also tested his device on cancerous mice, Reich became convinced that he had indeed tapped into a previously unknown form of energy that had the potential to cure both physical and mental health conditions. Needless to say, this did not please the U.S. psychiatric and medical communities who wished to continue their hold 
and ensure their profits on issues pertaining to national health care, treatment, and medicinal drugs. No one in the official world wanted to see the entire U.S. population cured of all its ills by an energy that was freely available to one and all. God forbid! Oh, jeez. <laughs> Reich also claimed to have uncovered a life-threatening opposite of organ, which he termed deadly organ, or DOR. Reich further maintained that DOR had been responsible for turning large parts of the earth into desert. As a result, he began working on a device known as a cloud buster. It was Reich's belief that he could manipulate streams of argon energy in the atmosphere, something that could result in production of clouds and rainfall. Realizing the potential spin-offs that this technology offered humankind it was Reich's ambitious plan to see his weather control technology used all across the planet in areas decimated by drought and as a means by which some of the huge deserts of the earth could ultimately be turned into grassland, forest, and jungle. <sighs> Interestingly, Reich reportedly observed countless UFOs over Maine and also in the Arizona skies during the course of his cloud-busting experiments in the two states. He, he speculated that perhaps these UFOs were propelled by argon and released DOR as a form of waste. Reich even asserted that his cloud buster could adversely affect potentially hostile UFOs in the event that an interplanetary war broke out. Okay, that's it for today. We'll pick up next week on perhaps never ever to believe faced with the knowledge that there was a man who was offering the people of Earth's perfect health. Yada, yada, yada. We'll do that next next week, y'all. So, for now, bye-bye. <laughs>